Uh, let me invite those of you who are gathered with us this morning to turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. Look at the whole chapter. As you turn there, let me greet all those of you who are gathered with us today to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. I say turn to chapter 19, but strictly speaking, I'll read the last bit of chapter 18. Uh, it provides some much-needed context for what we will say about chapter 19. So 1841 and following to the end of chapter 19, let's hear God's word together. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a, at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and, and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces, the, tore in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, the earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meloah, you shall anoint to be a prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. But I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. 
Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father or my mother, and then I will follow you. He said to him, Go back, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. And he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, so often we don't understand your ways. We don't know why you do what you do. Help us, though, in those moments when we don't know why to trust you, Lord, to trust your gracious character. Help us to remember and help us to believe that you are our helper, that you are a faithful father, and that you will see us through. Father, we ask that if there are discouraged hearts here this morning, that your word would bring consolation and healing. We pray, Father, that you would reveal yourself and your truth to us. We know that we cannot see any spiritual truth without the illumination of your Holy Spirit. So we ask, Father, that you would graciously impart your light to us through your Holy Spirit. Grant us to see the wonders of your glory and goodness. Uh, Grant us to see all that you've said to us in this passage and to believe it and be transformed. Amen. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you will know that Joseph's brothers treated him very badly. Uh, They sold him off into captivity. Uh, It was a terrible thing that they did, and they knew it. Uh, Years go by, there's a terrible famine in Canaan, and they have to go to Egypt to buy grain. And there's a rather impressive ruler over Egypt whom they don't recognize as their brother Joseph. He recognizes them, and he puts them to the test, and they are certain that their sins have caught up with them. Now, at last, the judgment that has been looming over them over these many years will come down on them. God is working to bring judgment. The irony, of course, is they are assuming God is working to bring judgment at the very moment God is working to bring salvation. God is going to work through Joseph to save their lives and keep them from starving to death. But their interpretation of what God is up to is the exact exact opposite of what God is actually up to. Uh, We see that Many times with characters of Scripture, they assume God is up to one thing, and they're off. Uh, We perhaps experience that in our own lives. And uh, we're wrong not just about what God is up to uh, so often, but what means God uses to accomplish His purposes. We think that God works through one means when, in fact, He's working through another. And that's what we see with Elijah in this passage. A man who expects the Lord to do one thing. When in fact, the Lord will do another, and he will do it differently than Elijah and perhaps we thought. Four things we'll note about this passage. Number one, we'll see what fire from heaven can't do. What fire from heaven can't do. Uh, Secondly, what Elijah's despair reveals. What Elijah's despair reveals. Third, how God works. Fourth, what service to God requires. Now, To make sense of chapter 19, as I've suggested, we have to go back to 18 and remember the spectacular victory of the Lord over Baal. Uh, There was a showdown between the Lord, the God of Israel, and the false God Baal, and the Lord wins. It's no contest. Fire comes from heaven, burns the sacrifice, burns even the water around the sacrifice, and the Lord is vindicated as the one true God over Israel. And the prophets of Baal, of course, are put to the sword. 
And there's been about three years, more than three years of drought in Israel. And that drought, as we've seen, finally comes to an end as Elijah petitions the Lord on behalf of Israel. It looks for a moment like even Ahab is compliant. He listens to what the prophet Elijah says every step of the way. He goes and he eats in verse 41. And that may well be a covenant meal of the kind you see in Exodus. When God establishes a relationship with Israel, he has the elders come up to the mountain and they eat in his presence to ratify the covenant. Maybe something like that is happening here. Certainly Ahab is doing what Elijah says, and Ahab goes back to Jezreel with Ahab. It looks like Israel as a nation is turning back to the Lord. It looks like there is the possibility of renewal even in the royal household. It's a red-letter day in Israel. The Lord is vindicated. The heavens are rent. Fire comes down. And just four verses later, we read, kill me. And he asked him that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life. What? We're not prepared for this, right? 18 is taking us on a certain path, and we as readers anticipate, like Elijah, massive renewal. But what we find just a few verses after is Elijah asking to die. What has happened? What has gone wrong? And... In a word, the answer is Jezebel. Ahab comes back and he tells her what the prophet has done, everything that he's done. If Jezebel was a right-thinking, rational person, how would you expect her to respond? Oh, wow, fire from heaven, you say? Okay, well, I've got to rethink my theology and my commitment to Baal. No, Uh, she doubles down on her Baal worship and she threatens Elijah. By this time tomorrow, you're going to be as dead as those prophets. We know she's as good as her word because she has slaughtered other faithful prophets of the Lord. And so Elijah flees. But it's not fundamentally Jezebel's threat that unsettles Elijah. It is the recognition that the longed-for renewal of Israel isn't coming after all. The royal household will not be renewed Israel will not turn back to the Lord in repentance. And he says as much in verse 4 where he says, I'm no better than my father's, meaning I'm as impotent in restoring Israel to the Lord her God as my forefathers. It has come to nothing. I have failed. I thought this would be a moment of national renewal, but it has come to nothing. Indeed, he says to the Lord later on, I alone am left of the prophets of the Lord. Uh, This should have been a sweet moment of national repentance It hasn't happened. Now pause for a moment and consider that massive discrepancy. Chapter 18, chapter 19. Fire comes from heaven. The sacrifice is burned. Israel says the Lord is God, right? The Lord is vindicated. So tremendous display of divine power and nothing happens. What should we conclude from that? This is, after all, if we're, if we're reading the Bible as loyal, uh, as loyal worshipers of Yahweh, isn't 18 the moment we've been yearning for? Don't you read Scripture and you see Israel's rebellion again and again and false gods? And don't you say, Lord, when are you going to rend the heavens and come down with power and demonstrate that you alone are God and to be worshipped? When's that going to happen? It happens in 18. The moment we've longed for as readers, the moment Elijah has longed for happens There's this miraculous display of power, and it accomplishes nothing. 
the discrepancy between the power of the miracle and the lack of response is noteworthy. And I think that's full of significance and we would do well to reflect on that discrepancy. But one thing it reveals is the inadequacy of the miraculous, even the spectacularly miraculous, to produce repentance and faith. Truly, if something could have produced repentance and faith, it would be this. It doesn't, it doesn't happen. This is a, I think this is a, a correction to those of us who think, man, if God would just work with greater power, more miracles, signs and wonders, then people w- would repent. It's not, it's not the case in ancient Israel. This doesn't bring them to their knees in repentance. Even in Jesus' ministry, John 12, 37 says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. These displays of power don't finally produce repentance and faith. And if fire from heaven doesn't convert them, will your sophisticated argumentation convert them? Your polished presentation, your charisma, your force of character, will these things convert anyone? No. I'm not denigrating these things. I think there's a place for them. But these things in themselves are insufficient in converting anyone. The Lord alone must save, and we must squarely face that fact. We can't convert anybody. If fire from heaven can't do it, you can't do it. The, the discrepancy speaks to the hardness of the, the heart of the Israelites. They have sufficient evidence. God has come down and shown them that he is the Lord, but it doesn't change them. It shows just how far gone human beings are. We sometimes think, think that the fundamental problem with human beings is that they don't have enough information. They need more evidence. And if they could just get that evidence, then of course they would bow down and worship the Lord. Scripture teaches us, however, that our problem is deeper than that. It's not fundamentally a matter of not having enough information. It's that our hearts are bent in opposition against God. Uh, Lewis says in one place that uh, to speak of man's search for God is like speaking of the mouse's search for the cat. The mouse, incidentally, doesn't search for the cat. The mouse runs as far as possible from the cat. That's what sinners do. They hate God. They oppose him. They don't want to submit to him. The fundamental problem is not intellectual. It's spiritual. Our eyes are blind. Our ears are deaf to his voice. And uh, speaking of Lewis, on the back, of, back cover of Mere Christianity, there's a reviewer who writes this of Lewis, Anthony Burgess. Uh, C.S. Lewis is the ideal persuader for the half-convinced. The good man who would like to be a Christian but finds his intellect getting in the way. The problem is that there isn't a good man who finds his intellect getting in the way. There are just wretched rebels. John 3, 19, Jesus says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We don't need fundamentally more evidence. We need new hearts. We need our eyes to be opened by God the Holy Spirit to see the depth of our need and to see the sufficiency of Jesus to redeem us. What this moment in Israel's history powerfully underscores is just how wretched we are, just how far gone we are. Uh, Mere reason and evidence can't bring us back. Something deeper has to happen. And that something deeper, according to the New Testament, is God has to work in us through God the Holy Spirit. We have to be born again. We have to be given spiritual eyes, uh, eyes to see, ears to hear. Jesus says as much in John chapter 3, that it is the Spirit who imparts spiritual life. God has to not work simply outside of us. He has to work within us that we might respond as we ought. Nothing less than that will finally bring conversion.
So it's never a small thing for someone to come to faith in Christ, to repent. A miracle always has to precede trust in Jesus and repentance. And so if today you are in fact trusting in Jesus as your Savior, understand that you are trusting because God has worked in your heart. God the Holy Spirit has enabled that response. And recognizing that, you should pause and give thanks. You are where you are and you see what you see and you trust because God has enabled you to do so, has overcome that opposition to himself. Consider also the implications for evangelism. This text suggests that we can't do anything to convert anyone. God has to do it. So we should despair of our confidence in ourselves and our methods, and we should put our trust firmly in God. We should pray at least as often as we attempt to hone our arguments and presentation. Uh, But precisely because the Lord saves and we don't, that should be grounds for confidence. That means our limitations aren't his limitations. And to think that God couldn't use me because I lack learning or I'm not articulate enough is actually to say God is too small to convert through the likes of me. In our unbelief, we're making a statement about God and saying he is not powerful enough to work through someone as flawed and limited as me. Oh, he's God. He is able to use the weak things of the world to shame the wise. And so there should be a boundless confidence as we share the truth about him. That confidence flows not from ourselves, but from God. So very striking discrepancy between fire from the sky and despair. We learn fire from the sky can't bring us to repentance. Then we look at Elijah's discouragement, and that too is instructive. Elijah says, Lord, it's enough. I'm done. Take away my life. I haven't been able to do any better than my forefathers. I've not been able to bring Israel to a place of repentance, and he falls asleep. I think it's that kind of sleep that you sleep when you've all other sources of refuge are done, right? All other comforts in life have uh, disappeared. The, the last comfort that you can hold on to is unconsciousness. <laughs> you just roll over and let the blackness come. Uh, he's in that kind of mood. But crucially, why is he in that kind of mood? Why is he discouraged? If we consider ourselves, one of the, re- you know, the reasons we typically have for being discouraged is that our private happiness has been unsettled. That romantic relationship we thought would come to fruition hasn't happened. The promotion we set our hopes on at work hasn't happened. The dream vacation that we set our hopes on hasn't worked out, and so we're discouraged. Whatever the case is for us, we need to say emphatically that Elijah is not discouraged because his own private happiness was unsettled. Why is he discouraged then? He is discouraged because he, he thought this would be the moment when God receives the glory that is his due from his people Israel. He is discouraged because the nation he loves has persisted stubbornly in her rebellion. There is a holy fire that burns in his heart, a holy zeal that burns inside of him for the glory of God, for the Lord to be lifted up in Israel and for Israel to experience a revival. And when that doesn't happen, he is bitterly crushed and discouraged. Now, I'm not saying that his discouragement isn't a fault. I believe it is, but it's the kind of fault only a great man can have. To feel this kind of discouragement, you have to love something intensely. There has to burn in your heart a zeal for God and for his people. And I think that Elijah's discouragement is actually a rebuke to our apathy and indifference. Maybe you don't feel tempted to be discouraged about the people of God like Elijah. 
But maybe the reason is not that you have great faith, more faith than Elijah. Maybe the reason is you don't care. Maybe you're indifferent and apathetic about the glory of God and the good of his people. As long as you have money in your bank, food in your belly, work is reasonably satisfying, kids are obedient, life is good. If the church flounders and fails and you know, marriages around us among our brothers and sisters are falling apart and there's backsliding and the church is drifting towards compromise, we shrug our shoulders. Yeah, Lord will take care of it. I'll be faithful. Uh, that's apathy. That's indifference. The Apostle Paul in Romans exhibits the zeal of Elijah when he writes, Romans 9, 2, and 3, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I burn that, the, that these Jews, these Israelites, would come to know Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Do you know that holy passion to see Christ lifted up, given the worship and honor that is his due? Do you have that zeal to see God's people increasingly grow in their faith? Uh, are you burdened when you see your brothers and si sisters drifting into sin and error? Do you weep when the people of God drift? Do you intercede on their behalf? Do you intervene zealously to help bring them back to the Lord? Do you pray for those whose marriages perhaps are troubled? Do these things weigh upon you or do you shrug your sh shoulders apathetically? Honestly, as I read this passage, this was for me personally one of the most convicting and striking and challenging uh, moments. Do I have that kind of zeal for God and zeal for his people? And it's a question that we, uh, we all would do well to pose to ourselves. One indication of apathy towards God, towards his people, is that we never intercede for the church. Our prayer lives are constricted to us, to me, finances, health, family, and so on. But we never with tears in our eyes and burning hearts, bring the church, its ministries, its leadership, our brothers and sisters before the Lord. That is conspicuously absent. I think that's one indicator of where your heart is, of whether you're apathetic or not. So yes, Elijah is discouraged, but the source of his discouragement is this intense zeal for God and for Israel. Notice how the Lord helps his prophet and it, it is saying something about the Lord that he doesn't go, well, Elijah's discouraged, I'll let him figure it out. That's not how God deals with us in these moments, these dark nights of the soul. The Lord draws near and he cares for Elijah both physically and spiritually. Uh, in some ways, this story is about Israel, as we'll see, but it's also a story about God's care for Elijah himself. Uh, the way out of these moments of discouragement and disillusionment is finally to re-encounter God, to encounter him afresh, to remember who he is again, that he is God, he has no beginning, all his ways are right and good, and he is utterly faithful. To believe that afresh and to recommit ourselves to his service, that's the way out of this kind of discouragement. It's a spiritual solution, it's a theological solution, we need to re-encounter God. At the same time, we shouldn't discount the body physicality. Uh, we're not just spirits, we're also bodies, aren't we? God has, God has made us compound beings, and we see, strikingly, that the Lord provides for Elijah's physical needs. An angel rouses him from his depressed slumber, get up, eat, there's some hot bread, a jug of water, goes back to bed. There is concern for Elijah's physical needs, 
And we should note, there are some spiritual problems that have physical causes. Not all spiritual problems are the result of spiritual causes. Um, If you don't sleep enough and you eat too much and you overwork and you never exercise, sooner or later, and probably sooner, you're going to feel off, discouraged even. Uh, Have I been abandoned? No, you need to get to bed. You need to eat better. You need to get on a treadmill. it's not, God's not calling you to a, a, an all-night prayer vigil to get you out of that discouragement. He's calling you to shut off the lights and TV and sleep, uh, eat better, you know, get some exercise. Uh, we shouldn't attribute to spiritual warfare what can be explained by overeating, right? Sometimes there are just physical causes to our problems. L- let's not be more spiritual than God, you know. We're embodied beings. I should note, I think that we live in a culture that is perhaps a little too preoccupied with self-care. We should note also, we're going to die. These bodies will age. Uh, let's be realistic, right? Let's spend ourselves for Jesus, right? We want to say that, not be self-involved. At the same time, it's an undeniable fact that we have bodies, and there are certain laws that God has established for their proper functioning, so let's respect those. David Murray, in his book Reset, makes this observation about exercise. Research has shown that walking just two miles a day reduces the risk of cognitive decline and dementia by 60%. Exercise and proper rest patterns generate about a 20% energy increase in an average day, while exercising three to five times a week is about as effective as antidepressants for mild to moderate depression. What's one way out of mild depression? Get out. (laughs) Exercise. Get some wind on your face. Uh, In his book, Why We Sleep, Matthew Walker makes this observation about sleep. The irony that employees employees miss is that when you are not getting enough sleep, you work less productively and thus need to work longer to accomplish the same goal. This means you often must work longer and later into the evening, arriving at home later, go to bed later, and need to wake up earlier, creating a negative feedback loop. Why try to boil a pot of water on medium heat when you could do so in half the time on high? Underscores for us the importance of, yes, even sleep. God doesn't need sleep, but you do. Again, you are an embodied being. Recognize that, embrace all that it means, and uh, it may deal with certain problems that are perhaps spiritual in nature, but not spiritual in cause and origin. Perhaps there's a physical cause. So, The Lord takes care of Elijah even as he takes care of us and all of our sorrows and discouragements and disillusionments. He's fed once and then he's fed again. And on the strength of that second meal, he is propelled 40 days and 40 nights back to Horeb, back to the Mount of God, back to Sinai. Horeb and Sinai are the same mountain, uh, the place where the covenant was given to Israel centuries before, the place where Israel became a nation. God revealed himself to her and the law was given. Elijah goes back there. And then when he arrives at Sinai, Horeb, the Lord says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? How should we understand that question? Is it a rebuke or not? Some commentators argue that, yes, Elijah, what's Elijah doing in the middle of the desert? He should be in the northern kingdom calling them to, the, calling them to repentance. Perhaps. Uh, I think it is more probable, though, that this is not a rebuke, but an invitation for Elijah to speak. And my reason for saying that is notice the Lord provides the miraculous food that sustains him for 40 days and 40 nights, implying that the Lord wants him here at Sinai. 
What are you doing, Elijah? Uh, This is an invitation to speak. And my understanding of what Elijah says uh, is informed by his role as the prophet of Israel. What are prophets called to do? They are the covenant prosecutors of the Lord. They are called to go to the people of God and say, hey, you have drifted from the law of God. Repent. And at the same time, when they don't repent, he prosecutes the nation and brings charges against them before the Lord. And that's what Elijah is doing here. And so this is not an instance of melodrama. Some commentators take that approach. Elijah's just so beat up and discouraged. He's he's grotesquely misrepresenting reality. I don't believe that's happening. I believe he is leveling a legitimate charge against the people of Israel, a charge that the Lord himself will sanction, as we'll see as we follow the thread of this passage. So Elijah says to the Lord, I've been jealous for for you, Lord, and the people of Israel, they have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown your law to the side. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets, and even I only am left. Now, you will recall from previous chapters, there are at least a hundred prophets whom Obadiah has saved. And it's not like Elijah is unaware of these prophets. When he says that he alone is left as a prophet of the Lord, what I think he means is that he alone is actively functioning as a prophet. The other ones are in hiding, right? Obadiah has put them in caves and he's feeding them, but he alone has remained uh, faithful to the Lord. But the crucial charge against Israel in the sight of God is she has abandoned your covenant and the Lord says, go out. And he gives, this, he gives to Elijah this spectacular vision that communicates something important about how God works. Uh, he sends four phenomena, natural phenomena. He sends first a powerful wind, so powerful that it levels a mountain, just tears it down. Then there's an earthquake. Then there is fire from heaven. And then there's a, a gentle whisper, or as the King James has it, a still, small voice. What is God saying to Elijah and to us? Well, the first thing we need to notice in in expounding this vision is that there is a clear contrast between the first three phenomena and the last phenomenon, right? What do the first three have in common? Power. They're spectacular displays of divine power. And they contrast with this still, small whisper, this voice. The last one is unobtrusive, discreet, subtle, not an in-your-face display of God's power. That's the first thing we notice, that contrast between the phenomena. Second thing we notice is there is reference to fire. Where have we heard about fire before? Well, previous chapter, right? We saw fire come down from heaven. And I believe that mention of fire draws a connection between 19 and 18. In the vision, uh, the Lord is commenting on what happened at Mount Horeb in uh, chapter 18. What sort of victory was Elijah expecting in chapter 18? Shock and awe, right? Fire comes down, Israel uh, would be renewed. And the Lord says through this vision to Elijah... Elijah, yes, I can work through fire, but Israel's renewal will not come that way. Israel's renewal will not come through fires and earthquakes and violent storms. Israel's renewal will come, but it will come through a soft whisper, unexpected, unobtrusive, seemingly weak, 
That is how the people of God and indeed the world will be renewed. It's difficult, isn't it, as Christian readers of Scripture, reading this passage within the totality of God's revelation, not to be intrigued by the connections to Christ. I'm not going to work through overt displays of power. I'm going to work as though I'm not working through weakness. We think here of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, where Paul writes, Jews demand signs. The Jews in Jesus' day, what are they looking for? Fire from heaven. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. What are they looking for? Fire. What do they get? Christ crucified. A still whisper, if you like. They're looking for a Messiah who will come conquering, treading on the necks of his enemies. And the Messiah that does come comes in a certain sense in weakness. The eternal Son of God becomes a baby, and he lives his life on the principle of service to others. He washes the feet of his disciples, and then everyone considers him condemned and stricken and abandoned by God. He freely offers his life to God on behalf of a sinful Israel and a sinful humanity. It is through weakness, through vicarious suffering, through our Lord standing in our place and taking upon himself the covenant curses that we deserve. It is through that still whisper that we find redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, reconciliation to God. It is through the self-giving, the anguish of the Son of God, that we are brought to a place of repentance and renewal. What we need is not fire from heaven, but we need the Son of God to take our sins upon himself. That's the true source of renewal and repentance. And because he has done that, those who trust in him can have life, deliverance for judgment, and reconciliation to God. It's intriguing in this light to look at the response of Jesus' first disciples. Remember in Luke 24, after he's resurrected, there are these dejected disciples who don't yet know that the resurrection has happened. They're on the road to Emmaus, defeated, because they thought this is the one who was going to redeem Israel. Luke 24, 21. We had hoped that this one, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. This is an Elijah-like discouragement. We thought that now was the time. And the reason for thinking it wasn't the time is because Jesus died. They couldn't see how God could use weakness and death and suffering to bring about victory. They were looking for fire, and God was working through the still, small voice, Jesus' anguish. That is how we find redemption. So it teaches us, this passage teaches us about God's work through his son Jesus, but it also teaches us, teaches us about his work through us. What do we tend to value if we're honest with ourselves when it comes to ministry? The overtly uh, successful, the spectacular, the miraculous. God's surely working there because there's fire, there's miracles, there's explosions and trumpets. I'm not saying that there's never a place for that. Uh, but more often than not, you know where the Lord works in the whisper, in the steady faithfulness day after day, as we trust in God and humbly fulfill our responsibilities, that silent uh, sacrifice, that, that still whisper, that still small voice is precious in the sight of God. And he's using that ordinary faithfulness to accomplish great things. Do you believe that? When his fathers gather their families week after week, day after day, to read scripture and prayer, and it doesn't seem like much is happening, it seems so ordinary, 
Do you believe that that is honoring to God and that he is using that and in fact using it mightily? You know, the Sunday school teacher who loves those children and prays for them week after week and shows up uh, early and seeks to know the Bible and provide a good example and just show the love of Jesus to those kids. It may in some ways be inconspicuous, but is God using that mightily? Yes. And the sign that you believe that God uses not just fire, but also the whisper is the fact that you cheerfully persevere in those ordinary, out-of-the-way acts of faithfulness. You don't lose heart. You don't become discouraged. You keep going, trusting that God sees and delights in it and blesses it and will use it more than we realize now. God is a God of fire, but he is also the God of the still uh, voice, the whisper. A second time, the Lord speaks to Elijah. Elijah, why are you here? giving him the opportunity to unburden his soul and also make his case against Israel. Why two times? Hard to say. Uh, Perhaps this is a more formal statement of Israel's failure, a more formal act of prosecution. That's what one commentator suggests is possible. And at this juncture, and this is the way that, that we see that the Lord fundamentally agrees with Elijah's assessment of Israel's spiritual condition, this juncture, the Lord pronounces judgment. 18, God opens wide his arms to Israel. Come to me. Israel refuses. And now he pronounces judgment. He says to Elijah, go and appoint uh, Hazael to be king over Syria. Hazael will be uh, a source of judgment upon Israel. Uh, will bring much misery to her, as we'll see later in 2 Kings. Jehu will bring God's judgment down on the house of Ahab. And Jezebel, he'll be an instrument of judgment. And even the ministry of Elisha will be another sword in the hand of God, as he says. Israel has been indicted, and God says the time of judgment has come. Notice first God's grace. Holds out his arms wide to Israel again and again and again. God doesn't delight in the death of the sinner. He invites the sinner to find redemption, forgiveness, and the restoration of relationship with him. God's desire is that no one would perish, but all would have life through Jesus Christ. And so he calls again and again. But there comes a moment when if we harden our hearts and resist the call of God again and again, there comes a moment when it's too late, when there is no longer a call to salvation, but the certainty of judgment. And that's where Israel is. She has been called repeatedly by her her Lord to return, and she has stubbornly refused the grace of God, and now judgment is coming. And we need to affirm that that is true for all those who will not accept God's gracious offer of salvation through Jesus. They harden their hearts, persist in their rebellion, then there is only judgment ahead of them. And yet we see in the passage judgment mingled with mercy, because although judgment is coming to the nation, Verse 18, the Lord in his grace has preserved 7,000 who have remained faithful to himself, who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Uh, They haven't kissed him. Paul in Romans chapter 11 will draw on this passage to underscore God's grace. Even in the darkest times when it seems everybody's going, (laughs) leaving God, the grace of God will preserve a remnant, as he does here. And this underscores the truth that Jesus communicates, right? That he's going to build his church and the gates of hell will never prevail. It doesn't matter how black the night gets. God will keep a people for himself. The church will never be completely extinguished. So there's grace in the midst of judgment. So Elijah uh, 
does what he's told to do, at least in terms of Elisha. Uh, he goes to Elisha, casts his mantle on him, and uh, that's the source of our idiom, to pass on the mantle, to receive the mantle. There's your text. It's the basis of the idiom. Uh, goes to Elisha. You're the next man up. And notice significantly what Elisha does. This teaches us what service to the Lord requires. He's plowing the field with his oxen, uh, 12 yoke of oxen, suggesting that he's well off, right? Not a poor man. He is a man of means. Uh, but when Elijah calls him, what does he do? Hold on. I'm just going to say bye to mom and dad. Then he slaughters the oxen. And this is significant because this is how the man supports himself, right? This is how he plows the field. But in receiving the call to be a prophet of the Lord, he says that, that former manner of life is done. No more plowing now. I'm a prophet of the Lord, and I'm consecrating myself fully to that work. And so the oxen are slaughtered. A meal is given to the people around him. What does Elisha teach us about serving Jesus? He teaches us that serving Jesus requires focus and single-mindedness. Note, he doesn't try to moonlight as a prophet. You know, still plows his field by day, prophet by night. He doesn't try to squeeze in his prophetic vocation uh, while maintaining his oxen. He doesn't try, in other words, to have it all. Elisha understands that having been called to be a prophet of the Lord, he has to say no to certain things so he can say yes to the call of God. Obeying Jesus requires focus. We see it with the apostles, don't we? When Jesus calls them, they leave their fishing nets and their boats so they can go and follow Jesus Christ. They say no to one trajectory in life so they can say yes to another. And in the same way, if you're going to be faithful to Jesus, do what he has put you on earth to do, there are things you have to say no to. We can't do many things well, so do the main things well. We can't do many things well, so do the main things well. Uh, and, and it's hard because we live in a time of limitless options. It's not like we're born you know, far into a family of farmers in the past and we're going to do what our fathers did and life is more or less mapped out for us. Limitless options. And the danger is we're going to try to do it all and actually accomplish very little. So what do you need to say no to so that you can say yes to the more fundamental responsibilities that God has given you? That may mean not pursuing wealth to the degree that you might want. That may mean uh, not signing up your kids for as many activities, as many sporting event, you know, activities or musical lessons or whatever it is. That tends to be a big one, I, I find. You know, that tends to squeeze a lot of things out. Whatever it is for you, what do you need to say no to so you can say yes to following Jesus. Can't do it all. Life is short. You've got to commit yourself to a few weighty priorities. What are those for you? And as you say no to certain things and give your life to Jesus and say, I want my life to count, as you do that, understand, as we noted already, that God is not the God of the, just the fire. He is the God of the low whisper. As you faithfully serve in quiet, uh, out-of-the-way ways, understand that that's pleasing to God and he is using that mightily to advance his kingdom and do good to others. So commit yourself to him in the confidence that he intends to use you to bring blessing to others. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord, our passage today is just full of rich instruction. Uh, we pray that your word would not simply stimulate our minds, but transform the direction of our lives. Grant us, O oh God, a zeal like Elijah had for your name 
and the good of your people. Let us be zealous for you and for the church and the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters. And grant us to walk in the confidence, Lord, that our unseen acts of faithfulness are seen by you and you will bless them and accomplish great things. Amen.